I've got a few predictions to share with you, things I'm going to predict, all right? So hang with me, all right? Uh, first prediction that I'm going to provide, you know, a little, little uh, action here for my prediction. Um, the WVU basketball and football teams, okay, both of them, they're going to win a national championship in three years. First prediction. Second, Russia will completely abandon its nuclear program by 2028. That would be uh, really, really good, right? Especially with all that's going on. Russia will completely abandon its nuclear program by 2028. And here's the third prediction that I want to share with you. This should make you very, very excited. Uh, if it were to come true, to compete with the increased purchase of all the electric or hybrid cars because of the cost of gas, and to prevent the crash of the power grid with all those increases in purchasing of those types of vehicles, the cost of gas will drop as low as $1 per gallon by 2025. Now, uh, here's my question. What are the odds that I would get any of those predictions right? What are the odds? Not very good, right? Especially the WVU thing. Especially the WVU thing. Ohio State, maybe, right, Ian? That, that's a little bit more likely. Yep. Um, if I would get even one of those highly unlikely predictions, admittedly highly unlikely predictions. If I got even one of those right, I think you all would probably start talking to me about uh, stock market advice and investment advice, right? Uh, Because those are some pretty outlandish predictions, Uh, pretty staggering odds against any of those things coming true. Uh, Well, several years ago, Speaking of odds and that kind of thing, uh, there was a mathematician by the name of Dr. Peter Stoner, who was also a Christian in addition to being a professional mathematician, and he knew from studying the Bible that Jesus clearly fulfilled over 300 prophecies. All of those prophecies about the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, what he would be like, what he would do, what he would accomplish, over 300 prophecies about the one promised person known as the Messiah. He knew that from studying the Bible. And being a mathematician, he decided to try and objectively calculate the probability that any one person could fulfill that many events predicted so long in the future. So he set out to do that. And his, his whole premise was, what are the odds that one man could fulfill 300 plus biblical prophetic predictions. And so when Stoner started this project out and he, he calculated the probability that anyone could fulfill those types of things, uh, when he got to eight, when he got to just being able to fulfill eight prophetic predictions, the number, the probability was so large that he had to use an analogy to express how staggering the odds were. Uh, And there was no logical point for him to go any farther. I mean, the the odds were so high, the probability so great, that there was no point even going on to 
9 and 10 and 11 prophecies being fulfilled. The odds were just way too astronomical. So Stoner's number for the odds that just eight, just eight prophecies could have been accurately and completely fulfilled by one person was one times ten to the seventeenth power. So that's one with seventeen zeros behind it. And we would write that out as one hundred quadrillion. One hundred quadrillion. And in his statements about this project, he said, to appreciate how large that number really is, imagine filling the state of Texas, which is our second largest state, filling the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Then, mark one silver dollar with a red X, mix them all up, blindfold someone, spin them around, and then have them pick that one dollar with the red X on the first try. I mean, that would be impossible, right? Two feet deep, silver dollars over the state of Texas, spinning around blindfold and then reaching into that and picking out that one dollar with the red X. Absolutely impossible. No way that could happen, right? The point is this. It would be just as impossible for any mere human to fulfill even eight of the messianic prophecies. Not just improbable, impossible. That is, for anyone other than God. And that's what the events surrounding Easter are all about, right? It's about God easily doing what only God could ever do. That's what Easter's all about. All the events that surround what we know as Easter. And, and I mean, from the, from the very beginning of Christ's Passion Week, all the way through to the cross and to the, the burial and then the resurrection. It's all God easily doing what only God could ever do. And 700 years before Jesus came to earth, Isaiah prophesied about the coming of Jesus and His unique ministry as Messiah. And in chapter 53 of his book, in Isaiah 53 alone, there are about 20 very specific prophecies, all related to his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We, we see all that taking place in the New Testament. And as we look at those events, his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, and we connect it back to what Isaiah 53 says about all those, then what we see are all those prophecies being unquestionably, completely, uniquely fulfilled by Jesus, down to the last detail. And today, as we start this new series, we're going to talk about the revealed and rejected Redeemer. The revealed and rejected Redeemer. And that is the first major prophetic description about Jesus in Isaiah 53. So, let's look at that together, okay? Let's look at Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. That's going to be our main text. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. And the prophet Isaiah writes this, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So he doesn't start off with a prophecy. He starts off with a question. And it's a really good question. It's an important question. And this important statement is connected to a very significant New Testament fulfillment that we're actually going to see 
at the end of the message today. So this, this very question, this statement is going to come up again. So pay attention to it. It's a really, really important thing that Isaiah starts this chapter with. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, that's referring to Jesus. Uh, that's a very apt description of him and what he was going to do and accomplish. The arm of the Lord. To whom has the arm of the Lord, Jesus, the coming Messiah, been revealed? Then verse 2, he says this about this arm of the Lord that was going to come. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Luke 2.52 tells us that the boy, Jesus, increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. So there is an obvious prophetic fulfillment right there. The fact that he grew up, that this arm of the Lord, the coming promised Messiah, grew up before the Lord, Yahweh, like a young plant, tender. And right away, Jesus, the Messiah, totally baffled expectations. Everyone had this idea that the Messiah would come in as this mighty warrior conquering with all this prestige and pomp and all this total public statement surrounding him. And instead, he comes as a baby. A baby. And he grows up in very, very timid, low circumstances, like a, like a tender young plant. But he grew up. He grew up before his father, before his God, like a young plant. And he also says he was like a root out of dry ground, like a root out of dry ground. What does that mean? Well, at the time that Jesus grew up in Roman-occupied Galilee, dry ground would have been a fitting description in pretty much every aspect, everything you could look at, spiritually, emotionally, physically, economically. It was definitely dry ground, especially Galilee, where Jesus grew up, where he was from. And a dry root in barren or dry ground, it doesn't really have anything to offer, does it? Not much value there. But what Isaiah points to by using that imagery connected to Christ is the fact that God often brings life and goodness out of barren ground. He does that all the time. That's his track record. And he seems to love to do that. All through Scripture, you see him doing what people would consider impossible. You see him creating life and goodness where there isn't any life and where there isn't any goodness. So God loves to do that. He loves to defy the odds. He loves to take what we would describe as useless and without value, barren, dry, empty, and he loves to say, watch what I'm going to do. Watch what I'm going to do with this. Watch what I bring out of what you see as barren and empty. Just wait and just watch. And that's certainly what we could say is true of the coming of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of God creating blessing out of something barren. Let's look at the rest of verse 2. Isaiah says, He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at Him. No appearance that we should desire Him. We know from Philippians 2 that He, though being in the very form God, did not consider equality with God as something to hold on to and grasp. Instead, He emptied Himself and took on the form 
of a slave. The great emptying, the kenosis of God the Son, where he veiled and concealed his glory and his majesty that he had known and enjoyed for all of eternity up to the point of him coming, up to the incarnation. In verse 3, he goes on and he says about this arm of the Lord, this Messiah, Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised. And we didn't value him. That was what this coming Messiah in the arm of the Lord came into. That was how he was received. That was his reception. It wasn't reception at all. It was total rejection in every aspect, in every regard. Though he was coming to deliver man, he was despised by man. Though he was coming to give sinful man his righteousness, he was rejected by man. Though he came to provide healing down to the very core of our being, instead, he himself identified with sickness. And though he was one that should have been embraced, and he, in his own words, would later say before he went to the cross, How long, how often I long to gather you to myself, to embrace you. Instead of welcoming his embrace, people turned away from him. And though he was someone that had all surpassing infinite value, more valuable than anyone or anything we could possibly even comprehend, we, humanity, didn't value him at all. That was what he came to. And this was all prophesied just in these first three opening verses of this incredible chapter these are the things that Isaiah specifically pointed to and looked ahead at and, and prophesied in, in such detail. Now, let's look at the New Testament fulfillments of those things. Let's look at how Isaiah was completely on target, and we're going to consider the New Testament complete and accurate fulfillments of what he had prophesied in these verses. First, I want to draw your attention to John 1.11. And John 1.11 says this, He, Jesus, came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Jesus came to His own creation. We know from earlier in John 1 that it was Jesus as the Word, the, the mighty eternal Word of the Father, He's the one who actually created all things. It's by His Word that all creation came to be. Colossians 1 tells us that. Hebrews 1 tells us that. So Jesus, the Creator, came to His own creation. And on top of that, He came as a Jewish person. So He came to His own nation. And His own people, His own creation and His fellow Jews, did not receive Him. We have record of how extensive that rejection was. Scripture goes farther and it sheds even more light on what that looked like. And so 
with that as the backdrop, let's look at Mark chapter 6, verses 2 through 6. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And Mark chapter 6, verses 2 through 6, it gives us a picture of, of how that actually looked and what that was like. It gives us some details of a specific occurrence of that rejection. Mark chapter 6, verse 2 through 6. God's Word says this, On the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And that's in Nazareth, which is his hometown. In Nazareth, his hometown, in that synagogue. So he was teaching in the synagogue there, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? I mean, is, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Notice that part. They took offense at him. In other words, they didn't want what he was saying. They were turned off. They rejected him. They, they weren't amazed in a good way. They were amazed to the point of being offended by him and saying, well, we don't, we don't want anything to do with this guy. We don't know where he's getting this. We don't know what happened to him. No, thank you. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Talking about them, of course. And the text says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. He was astonished at what? Look at what it says. Because of their unbelief. They were astonished. They marveled at this, this strangeness as, as they saw this ordinary person that they had seen grown up and they knew whose family he had. And so they're thinking, wait, this shouldn't happen. And so they were offended. They were, they were driven to reject him. But he marveled at their unbelief. You know, often unbelief has more to do with what we want or what we don't want than what we think or accept. So much of the time, our unbelief is not fueled by some not having all the facts or not having all the information. It's not so much an intellectual thing that causes our unbelief. A lot of the times it's because we don't want what's been in front of us. We want something else instead. And that fuels and drives our unbelief. And that's certainly the case here. And it astonished him. He marveled at the depth and the level of their unbelief and how easy it was for them to reject him. Well, let's go on with what we read in John 1.11 in mind, that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. We saw that there. In John chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, we see another absolutely incredible account of his people's rejection of him, just as Isaiah prophesied, of him being despised, of him being not welcomed but rejected, not embraced but turned away from, not held up as, as the value that was fitting of him, unimaginable value. Rather, he was considered to not have any value whatsoever. John chapter 12, 
verse 37 and 38. And this, by the way, is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53.1 that we read at the beginning where Isaiah asked that question. John 12, 37-38. Even though He, Jesus, had performed so many signs in their presence. And, and there, what, what's being referred to, this group of people that John is writing about and pointing to, when it says he did so many signs in their presence, that's really basically all of, of Israel. That's the Jewish nation. That's specifically those in Jerusalem, because that's where he was at this point, the, the residents of Jerusalem. And he's certainly referring to the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, but he's referring to the people themselves. So it's really just kind of everyone lumped into this category. Certainly there were exceptions to this. There were people that believed, of course. But generally speaking, it's just a generalized way of saying Israel rejected their Messiah. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. It's kind of like other accounts of, of miracles that he did. You know, when he fed the 5,000, and then after that fed the 4,000, and people kept coming to him, and they were basically saying, what are you going to do next? That was really cool, and we loved having free lunch, but that was then. What are you going to do now, Jesus? And Scripture tells us in different places that he did not give himself over to them because he knew what was in their heart. He knew that they weren't believing in Him. They were believing in the cool factor, the wow factor of the miracles that He was doing. And they just wanted another show or a free lunch. Believing about Jesus is different from believing in Jesus. And that's such an important distinction not to miss. There are all kinds of people all through our nation and in every age that have believed about Jesus. There's people all through the world and in every religion that do that. They'll believe about Him. They'll say, oh yeah, we accept that He lived. We know He's a historical figure. We'll even say that He was a good, moral man. And we'll maybe even say He's a holy prophet. But that's different from believing in Him for your salvation, for your eternal life. That's different from giving your life to Him and letting Him lead and rule your life as the Lord of it. See, that's what believing in Jesus is about. It's surrender. It's saying you are the one and only Messiah, not just for the people living at the first century, but in every century. You're the only Messiah that God has provided. You are the Messiah I need, and you are the Lord of my life. I surrender all. That's what believing in Jesus is all about. And the people there right in front of Jesus, and millions and millions of people after Jesus, just don't get to that point of believing in, not just about. And verse 38 says this, this, that happening, the not believing in Him, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, we read this at the beginning, Isaiah 53.1, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What a sad diagnosis, right? 
They had him. They had him right there. But they despised and rejected and turned away from and considered him of no value. But thankfully, thankfully, that doesn't have to be the final word for anyone. That doesn't have to be the final word for anyone. That doesn't have to be the the last statement of anybody's story as it relates to Jesus. Here's what John 1.12 says. You know, John 1.11 said that He came to His own, to His own people, but they didn't receive Him. But John 1.12 says this in a great, glorious, beautiful contrast. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, see the difference in about and in? Not just believing about Him, but believing in His name, the one and only name by which we must be saved. To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That means you and me as sinners and rebels in opposition to a holy God deserving nothing but His judgment have the ability, the privilege, the unworthy, undeserved privilege of being adopted into the heavenly family and being called child of God. By no merit and no value that should make God want us. It's not as if God needs us, right? I mean, we we get that, right? I mean, He's God. We're who we are. He doesn't need us. It's not like God is, has been in heaven, you know, wringing his hands. Oh, I just hope they come. I hope they come. Oh, I hope they like me. That's not why Jesus was sent. It's, it's not because God had an insecurity issue. He didn't need us. And there was nothing in or about us that should make him desire us. But out of grace and out of love, He sent the one that He knew we would reject. And even so, sent Him with the offer. The offer of adoption. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right. That's that's a legal change of status. That's changing of name, changing of backstory, changing of all that marked your life up to that point. Now you have a new name, you have a new identity, you have a new purpose, and you have new standing. Gave the right to become children of God. Church, Jesus knows what it is to be rejected. So he understands that kind of hurt. And and isn't that good news? Because many of us also know what it is to be rejected. We know the sting of rejection. We know what that pain is like. If you've been rejected, you know how deeply that scars. And isn't it great to know that he understands that kind of hurt. He identifies with that kind of pain. So if you're here today and you've been rejected by someone that was precious to you, Jesus understands you more than anybody else could. But more than just understanding, more than just understanding, 
He stands ready to provide eternal acceptance to anyone that commits their life to Him. That's the really, really good news. That's the good news of the Gospel. That He doesn't just understand. He doesn't just sympathize or empathize. He does. But He stands ready to change that for you. He stands ready to give you eternal, unconditional acceptance for anyone that commits their life to Him. Here's the thing about that, though, that we have to understand. And this is something that really wraps up everything that we've looked at and talked about together this morning. Jesus will never accept our sin. We need to get that very clear. Jesus will never accept our sin. But when we turn to Him from sin, we will never be rejected. And He's the only one that can promise that. And He's the only one that can absolutely give that type of assurance. He'll never look at us in in our sinful state without repenting and say, oh, it's okay. You don't have to change anything in your life. No, that's not the message of the Gospel. That might be the message of a social Gospel or a pseudo-Gospel. That's not the message of the Gospel. It's not that, that Jesus comes to you as you are in your sinful state and says, hey, you're fine just as you are. No, He refuses to leave you just as you are. He wants to bring about change that only He can. And as we respond in repentance, that's turning away from our sin and turning to Him, as we do that, we will be forever accepted and never, ever rejected. That's the good news of the Gospel. And that's really what Easter is all about. Aren't you thankful for that today? Do you know this Savior? Do you know the Savior who promises that? Do you know the Savior who's able to do that? Have you rejected Him or have you embraced Him? That's the question I want to leave with you today. What have you done with the arm of the Lord that's been revealed? What have you done with the Messiah that's been sent? What have you done with Jesus of Nazareth? The one that so many people, including one that became his disciple, said, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Yes. (laughs) What have you done with him? Have you, like what Isaiah prophesied and what was certainly fulfilled as he came and walked among us, Have you rejected Him? Have you despised Him? Have you turned away from Him? Have you considered Him to be of no personal value up to this point? If so, today is the day to change that. Today is the day to reverse course. Now, right now, is your time to do the opposite to run to Him, to embrace Him, to give Him your life, to tell Him there is no one greater, no one higher, no one and no thing that has more value than you, Jesus. I need you. Be my Savior. Rescue me. Change me. Accept me. See, it's it's not about what so often is said about us accepting Jesus. No, it's about running to Him and surrendering to Him that He may accept us forever. Have you done that? If the answer is no, again, now is your chance. Now is the moment for your salvation. Is there anybody who would say, yes, that's me. Pray for me. 
I need to be saved. Anybody at all? Christian, my fellow believer, as I'm praying, would you just give a prayer of praise and thanks for this awesome, awesome Savior that you have? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing that your word is reliable and true, that it's something we can depend on, that, I mean, just in the first three verses of Isaiah 53, with these incredible, very precise prophecies and predictions, we see how they are unquestionably, undeniably, completely fulfilled in your Son, Jesus. Down to the last detail. And Father, as we go on in this series and we go on in this study of Isaiah 53 and we see how what was prophesied was again and again totally fulfilled by Jesus in every way, may that stir our hearts, may that increase our faith, may that give us even greater confidence in Your Word and in You being the promise-keeping God that You are. May it draw us even closer to You and may we be in more awe of our Savior as a result of this. Father, I pray that if there is one who, what I said was true of them, that they up to this point have rejected your Son, please work in their heart by the power of your Spirit. Let today be the day where they reverse course, and instead of rejecting Him, may they embrace Him as their own Savior. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.